I found some really interesting news from our favorite, as always, Vice. This was published January 5th, 2023, article written by Becky Ferreira. And the title of the article, A Total Amateur May Have Just Rewritten Human History with Bombshell Discovery. Okay, I'm intrigued. Yes, I, I think that's what they meant to do. And <laughs> I, I will just get into it from here. I'm hooked. I need to know more. In what may be a major archaeological breakthrough, an independent researcher has suggested that the earliest writing in human history has been hiding in plain sight in prehistoric cave paintings in Europe. A discovery that would push the timeline of written language back by tens of thousands of years, reports a new study. Hundreds of European caves are decorated with mesmerizing paintings of animals and other figures that were made by our species between roughly 15,000 and 40,000 years ago, during the Paleolithic age when humans were still hunter-gatherers. These cave paintings often include non-figurative markings, such as dots and lines, that have evaded explanation for decades. Ben Bacon, a furniture conservator based in London, UK, who has described himself as quote, effectively a person off the street, unquote, happened to notice these markings while admiring images of European cave art and developed a hunch that they could be decipherable. Now Bacon has unveiled that what he believes is, quote, the first known writing in history of Homo sapiens, unquote, in the form of prehistoric lunar calendars, according to a study published on Thursday in the Cambridge Archaeological Journal. Quote, I think that the cave paintings fascinate us all because of their beauty and visceral immediacy, unquote. Bacon told Motherboard in an email, quote, I was idly looking at Paleolithic paintings one night on the web and noticed purely by chance that a large number of animals had what it looked to be numbers associated with them, unquote. Hmm. Intrigued by these markings, Bacon launched a meticulous effort to decode them with a particular focus on lines, dots, and Y-shaped symbols that show up in hundreds of cave paintings. Previous researchers have suggested that these symbols could be some form of numerical notation, perhaps designed to count the number of animals sighted or killed by these prehistoric artists. Bacon made the leap to suggest that they form a calendar system designed to track the life cycles of animals depicted in the paintings. He enlisted leading archaeologists from Durham University and the University College London to develop the idea and co-authored the new study. Quote, that we are looking for number-based information about specific prey animals is therefore our point of departure, unquote, the researcher explained in the study. Quote, it seems to us unnecessary to need to convey information about the numbers of individual animals, the times they have been cited, or the number of successful kills, unquote. Quote, it seems far more likely that information pertinent to predicting their migratory movement and period of aggregation, in essence, mating and birthing, when they are predictably located in some number and relatively vulnerable, will be of greatest importance for survival, they add. The researchers note that the paintings are never accompanied by more than 13 of these lines and dots, which could mean that they denote lunar months. The lunar calendar they envisioned would not track time across years, but would informally be rebooted each year during a time in late winter or early spring, known as the Bon Saison. I don't know why it's said that way. Bon Saison. The Y symbol, which is commonly drawn directly on or near animal depictions, could represent birthing because it seems to show two-parted legs. We adopt the simple solution that they started counting months at the start of the Bon Saison and continued until counting became irrelevant in the late winter, simply restating the count of months at the start of the next Bon Saison, the team said in the study. A great advantage of this calendar is that it is stable in describing the life cycle of animals and plants despite great geographical and cultural differences in the European Upper Paleolithic. 
To test this hypothesis, the team compiled a database of more than 600 line and dot sequences without the Y symbol, as well as some 250 sequences with the Y symbol, which appear mostly in the paintings from France and Spain. These sequences span tens of thousands of years and accompany many different animal depictions such as oryx, birds, bisons, prids such as goats and antelope, deer, fish, horses, mammoths, and extinct rhinos that once lived in Europe. After conducting a statistical analysis of the database, Bacon and his colleagues were amazed to find that their lunar calendar seems to hold up well with this pattern. Quote, overall, there is a remarkable degree of correlation between the number of lines slash dots in sequences with and without the Y and the position of Ys and the mating and birthing behavior of the analytical taxa. The researchers said in the study, our data do not explain everything, but even taking imprecision and regional variability into account, the degree of support for our hypothesis is striking. I think that's enough of the story for here. There's a lot more of the article if you want to go look at it. But yeah, I was quite amazed because really everything only goes back about 12,000 years from when we're talking about civilization. And for somebody to say like, no, these cave paintings can go back at least 40,000 years to show that people are trying to communicate. Yeah, some of them are pretty down. old. And you would think that by putting things like that, that they were trying to communicate, that they weren't like, here's a oryx or something like that. <laughs> just No, these were just for fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're probably trying to convey something that they're thinking is important enough that it needs to be it's, relayed. Especially when you think about a hunter-gatherer society, like, you have a lot, well, you do have leisure time, but you're going to try to do things that are important and can be useful. Whereas, like, if it's just art for art's sake, that doesn't show up, at least in how I understand it for a long time outside of cave paintings yeah that's something that you're gonna do when you have spare fun time yeah how come they never noticed this before i i think it was just easily explained in other ways and nobody really studied it and okay. it's funny that some guy off the street just kind of said like hey this seems weird and it actually was looked yeah, into. like it's on all the pictures yeah and i also i think that's crazy like at least how they're describing it it seems over a huge distance so this wouldn't be just like one tribe's way of describing it this almost seems like a continental agreement oh, on what really we're doing weird. here which is really weird it kind of connotes more society than you would expect yeah that would be exactly so yeah, I thought it was an interesting article. If anybody wants to, please go take a look. There is much more to the article and Vice does good stuff. What can I say Thank other you. than what we've said many a time? Yeah, we do like a good <laughs> Vice article. Anywho, cue music. From the unexplained to the mundane, why don't you come join us on our journey to the fringe? Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, where sometimes history is just two fringe topics wearing a trench coat of normalcy. We are your hosts who are conveying this message in our most fun and passionate ways, Taylor and Chelsea, here today, starting a little trip across the Pacific Ocean for us over to Japan and a little bit of history to go over here. Not necessarily fun history, but history that I think is important to go over that most people in the Western world don't learn about at all. Yeah. We're going to start, Chelsea's going to cover right around World War II. And then in the next episode, I am going to cover World War II to present day Japan with a few oddities that have happened in that time. So without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to Chelsea to do her episode on Japanese war crimes. Yay! Here we go. Oh boy, today's the day. It's Japanese war crimes day. Let's find out about them. 
And that was just the beginning, and that was a special haiku that I wrote just for all of you to mark this special occasion. And the occasion is that we forgot everything we thought we knew about Japan and learn about some of the many atrocities that have been committed. And after that beautiful haiku, it's all downhill from here. So you're saying that Japan is not just anime and sushi all the way back. Yeah, and, and crazy no crime. Yeah, no crime and, and well, really the Yakuza. Trains. Yeah. Really full trains <laughs> and really crazy game shows. And that's everything I know about Japan. <laughs> oh, and the kamikaze fighters. Kamikaze fighters and sumos. Oh, yeah, and the suicide. <laughs> Sorry, guys, this is just an episode of things we know about Japan off the top of our head. I'm sure it'll keep going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it'll get weird at some point. Right. Yeah. Sake. So, yeah, so that's what we know about Japan. We're going to learn the other more prevalent side of Japan that has been existent for way longer than we've known Japan to be what it is today. We have been sort of alluding to this episode a little bit. Nothing like serious. Like we never said we're going to have a Japan episode, I don't think. It was just like Look, Japan's way more awful than we think it is. We've looked at this time period before. Yeah. Specifically when we're looking at the European side. And yeah. we've just, because there is a whole other side to this war, have alluded to it but haven't touched on it. Yeah. And we're probably going to touch more on it in the future because, like, for Journey to the Fringe, we like to talk about things that people don't normally talk about and that you don't know about so that you can take with that what you will. And yeah, so let's start with the sex slaves of the Imperial Japanese Army. I'm pretty sure you mean comfort women, Chelsea. Yes, I do. Yes. I do. I'm just putting it more bluntly than comfort women. Yes. Big trigger warning right here. There's a lot of sexual assault talked about here. Not that I like talking about sexual assault. It's an important thing to talk about with... You'll see. You'll see. And, and I, I think just an episode entitled Japanese War Crimes, I do believe that the trigger warning is implied in the title. Yeah. I wouldn't but, necessarily yeah. think sexual assault with this, but here we are and huge trigger warning. Probably just skip this episode if that's a trigger for you. Let's go. Historians estimate that as many as 200,000 civilian women were forcibly conscripted into Japanese occupied countries between 1931 and 1945 and forced to serve as sexual slaves in the Japanese army brothels. And they are referred to as comfort women, as Taylor has already corrected me on. The majority of these women were conscripted in China and Korea, but this practice occurred in every country occupied by the Imperial Japanese Army. Mind-boggling as it is, successive Japanese governments have refused to admit that the Japanese Army troops committed these terrible crimes against women. Records of what the women were subjected to are scant. There are very few survivors, and an estimated 90% of comfort women did not survive the wars. And just so that we can understand like how widespread this is when we're saying not just China and Korea, Japan occupied most of Asia. We're talking about most of the island countries, Indonesia, the Philippines, mm, that's good information. Micronesia, yep. Taiwan would be involved in this as well. It's, it's really widespread. They were pretty brutal. Though military brothels existed in the Japanese military since 1932, they expanded widely after one of the most infamous incidents in Imperial Japan's attempt to take over the Republic of China and a broad section of Asia, which is referred to the Rape of Nanking, also known as the Nanjing Massacre. Now, 
If you wanted to, you could do a whole episode or even part of an episode on this because it's a pretty major event when you're researching Japan war crimes. But in this one, because it's me doing this episode and I'm talking about something else, I will just vaguely touch on it. So you have enough to get you through this episode. I will probably double back on another episode when we follow up on Japanese war crimes because we can. And I have some stuff for it already. <laughs> But yeah, the, you're just getting a little bit of a taste for it right now. Basically, for the Nanjin massacre, the Japanese were waiting for basically anything to happen to invade and occupy China. So in July 1937, tensions between Chinese troops and Japanese troops who were engaged in military exercises on occupied Chinese territory produced an exchange of firing near Peking, so Beijing. The Japanese used this incident as an excuse to wage an all-out war against China. So literally, it was anything to get a war going in China. On December 13, 1937, Japanese troops began a six-week-long massacre that essentially destroyed the Chinese city of Nanjing. Along the way, Japanese troops raped between 20,000 and 80,000 Chinese women. I know I'm not talking about this, but just to go along with the Nanjing massacre, there is a mass slaughter of the Chinese and some pretty horrific war crimes, including masses being buried alive. And Japanese who were competing with each other to invent new and more horrible ways to kill the Chinese. That's about all I'm going to say on it for right now. Obviously, you can see just from that little bit that there's some pretty concerning things already up with Japan that we didn't know about, or I didn't know about, that we should be concerned about. The estimated death tolls anywhere from 40,000 to 300,000 just from this one massacre. Yeah, from what I gather, it's pretty bad. And there's photos. Yeah, there are photos. I just took enough to have this set up for what's going on. So that could be another why the Japanese aren't really that good episode. So the mass rapes horrified the world and Emperor Hirohito was concerned with its impact on Japan's image of this rape of Nanking. Who was emperor of Japan at this time and Germany yeah. too, just yeah. so everybody knows. Yeah, as legal historian Carmen M. Agabe notes, he ordered the military to expand. This is Emperor Hirohito. He ordered the military to expand its so-called comfort stations or military brothels in an effort to prevent further atrocities, reduce sexually transmitted diseases, and ensure a steady and isolated group of prostitutes to satisfy Japanese soldiers' sexual appetites. So there you have it from the emperor. Japan was trying to fix the rape problem with what is to follow. Back to what I was talking about, the comfort women that they're setting up. Recruiting these women for the brothels or comfort stations amounted to kidnapping or coercing them. Women were rounded up on the streets of Japanese-occupied territories, convinced to travel to what they thought were nursing units or jobs, or purchased from their parents as indentured servants. These women came from all over Southeast Asia, but most were Korean or Chinese. Once they were at the brothels, the women were forced to have sex with their captors under brutal, inhumane conditions. Though each woman's experience was different, their testimonies share many similarities. Repeated rapes that increased before battles, agonizing physical pain, pregnancies, sexually transmitted diseases, and bleak conditions. Just, ugh. So here's one example from the Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia. And it is a story of a courageous Dutch girl who survived the sexual slavery forced on her by the Japanese army that occupied Java in 1942. 
This is from Horror in the East by Lawrence Reese, published by the BBC in 2001. Jan Ruff was in her late teens when Java was surrendered by the Japanese invaders on the 8th of March, 1942. The Dutch civilian population was rounded up by the Japanese and interned in camps where the living conditions were often as bad as the prisoner of war camps. The interned women were fed so little by the Japanese that they were forced to eat snails and rats to survive. They were arbitrarily beaten or forced to stand in the sun for hours by the Japanese guards whenever they felt. After two and a half years in an internment camp, conditions for Jan Ruff took a dramatic turn for the worse when Japanese officers entered the camp and ordered all girls over the age of 17 to line up for inspection. The Japanese officers then physically examined each girl as if she was an animal put up for auction at a cattle sale. When the line had been reduced to 10 girls, the Japanese officer ordered these girls to pack a suitcase and get into a truck. Protests by their mothers were ignored. The truck was then driven to a large house in Samarang, the capital of Middle Java. The house was surrounded by a high fence and guarded by Japanese soldiers. Jan discovered the terrible nature of the ordeal she was about to endure when the Japanese told the girls that they would live in this house and be required to provide sexual service for the Japanese military. Jan felt at the time as if her whole world had collapsed. In response to their protests, the girls were told that the Japanese would treat them in any way they pleased. The Japanese photographed each girl and assigned her a Japanese name. The photographs were then posted on the veranda for scrutiny by Japanese soldiers. So, <sighs> the rest of this part is pretty graphic, and I'm going to omit this part, but I will leave in one quote to get the point across Jan says from this part. She says, By raping me, the Japanese took away everything from me. My self-respect, my dignity, my possessions, my family. I really wonder how I coped. It's amazing how strong you can be. My strong belief in God and my faith and prayer helped me through. Jang only broke her silence when the war ended and she was reunited with her family. Her parents were devastated when told what the Japanese had done to her and she wanted to become a nun. But when she told a Catholic priest that she had been forced into sexual slavery by the Japanese army, he informed her that it would be not appropriate for her to become a nun. Jeez. Yeah, she felt dirty and ashamed when the priest said this to her, and his words cast a dark shadow over her life until 1992 when she heard that her terrible experience had been shared by as many as 200,000 women in countries invaded by the Japanese between 1931 and 1945. So, <laughs> the, she goes on, I'm going to continue this, but it's amazing what the Japanese... Like, saying this never happened and never admitting that this happened, what it does to those survivors as well, because they are so ashamed by it, and they think that nobody else was there, and a lot of them died as well, so nobody was sharing their story. Well, yeah, and it allows an entire nation to forget its history and not exactly. uh, learn from issues that they had yeah. in the past. Yeah. Which... Definitely comes up it's in the next pretty episode. pretty messed up. Yeah. yeah. So when Jan Ruff discovered that these female victims of gross sexual abuse by the Imperial Japanese Army were demanding an apology from the Japanese government and that the Japanese government was refusing to acknowledge this vile behavior of the Japanese Army with a public apology, she decided to tell her own story and join the battle to compel the Japanese government to make a full and public apology. I just find this ridiculous what Japan is doing. So it can be fairly said that whenever a Japanese prime minister included Ju Junichiro, Junichiro, Kuzmi Junichiro, 
Kenichiro. Oh, that sounds way better than what I said. Koizumi. <laughs> I, I can't see it, so I can't tell Koizumi. That's, uh, that's it. Pays homage to Japan's war dead, including Japan's worst war criminals, at the infamous Yasukini Shinto Shrine in Tokyo. It is the equivalent to a slap in the face for every woman forced into sexual slavery by the Imperial Japanese Army. I would have to agree, because it took so many lives and so many of these people are looked at like she's... And just so you know, that's... From what I understand, that's an annual thing that they do on yeah. a certain anniversary in Japan is the president yeah. honors the dead from the war, no matter what they did. Yeah, but not these people, not these yeah. women. So yeah, just a slap in the face because they were victims of this, huge victims of this. So the end of World War II did not end military brothels when it came to Japan. In 2007, Associated Press reporters discovered that the United States authorities allowed comfort stations to operate well past the end of the war, and that tens of thousands of women in the brothels were forced to have sex with American men until Douglas MacArthur shut the system down in 1946. By then, between 20,000 and 410,000, that's a huge discrepancy between numbers, women had been enslaved in at least 125 brothels. In 1993, the UN's Global Tribunal on Violations of Women's Human Rights estimated that at the end of World War II, 90% of the comfort women had died. After the end of World War II, however, documents on the system were destroyed by Japanese officials, so the numbers are based on estimates by historians that rely on a variety of extant documents. As Japan rebuilt after World War II, the story of its enslavement of women was downplayed as a distasteful remnant of the past people would rather forget. For decades, the history of the comfort women went undocumented and unnoticed. When the issue was discussed in Japan, it was denied by officials who insisted that comfort stations never existed. Then, in the 1980s, some women began to share their stories. In 1987, after the Republic of South Korea became a liberal democracy, women started discussing their ordeals publicly. In 1990, the issue flared into an international dispute when South Korea criticized a Japanese official's denial of events. And in the years that followed, more and more women came forward to give testimony. In 1993, Japan's government finally acknowledged the atrocities. Since then, however, the issue has remained divisive. The Japanese government finally announced it would give reparations to surviving Korean comfort women in 2015, but after a review, South Korea asked for a stronger apology. Japan recently condemned that request, a reminder that the issue remains a matter of present foreign relations in past history. So yeah, that is the Comfort Women of Japan story. There's obviously a lot more, but that about sums it up. Yeah, it's yeah, it's dark and Japan yeah. doesn't want to talk about it. Not at all. Nope, not at all. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're ready for the next thing that we're about to talk about. I'm thinking you might I'm get I'm sure it's ready. happy. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to cannibalism, shall we? Okay. Turns out cannibalism of allied prisoners and the Japan military was not a rare occurrence. And cannibalism practiced by the Japanese military was not necessarily related to shortage of normal food or food in general. Not just normal food, any food. Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> even the unnormal food. Yeah. 
I, I was mind blown by this. I did not know a single thing of this. I could have gone on and on about this. So, yeah. In The Knights of Bushido, written by Lord Russell of Liverpool, he cites examples of allied prisoners of war being murdered and portions of their bodies served up at dinner parties attended by senior Japanese army and navy officers. Captured American pilots were not only more likely to be murdered, but the eating of their flesh was made into something of a festive occasion in the Japanese officer's mess. Lord Russell includes the actual text of Japanese document headed order regarding eating flesh of American flyers. Well, that's nice. I'm going to get into a few examples of cannibalism in the Japanese army. So let's start with the Kokoda track. Between the 21st of July and the 26th of August 1942, this is, I believe, during World War II. It is, yes. The Japanese had landed 13,500 troops at the villages of Gona and Buna, and that's on the northern coast of Australia's territory of Papua. 10,000 of these troops were tough, jungle-trained combat veterans. The task facing this Japanese army was to cross the rugged Owen Stanley Range and capture the Australian administrative capital, Port Moresby, which was located on the southern coast of Papua. Port Moresby was at this time the last Allied base on the island of New Guinea, and its capture by Japanese troops would enable Japan to strike deeply with its bombers into the Australian mainland and intercept the vital lines of communication between the US and Australia. The Japanese did not realize that the only path across the steep ridge and valleys of the Owen Stanley Range was the very narrow dirt path called the Kokoda Track. In the expectation that their troops would quickly brush the Australians aside, the Japanese allowed only 10 days rations for the crossing of the mountains. The initial defense of the Kokoda Track was undertaken by about 500 militia troops of the Australian 39th Infantry Battalion. These Australian militia troops were poorly armed, equipped, and supplied, and the Japanese outnumbered them initially by at least 10 to 1. Many of the Australians were only 18 and they lacked both combat experience and adequate training. Despite these serious disadvantages, the Australians forced the Japanese to fight for every foot of their advance along the Kokoda Track. The young militia soldiers of the 39th Battalion blocked the Japanese advance along the Kokoda Track for five weeks and inflicted heavy losses on the enemy. On the 26th of August 1942, the exhausted and starving militia troops were finally joined on the northernmost ridge of the Owen Stanleys at Iserva by the first of the three battalion from the 214th Brigade. I had no idea what any of these mean. It's army talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look at me sounding like an army person. These were combat-toughened Australian troops who had returned from the Middle East. Despite these reinforcements, the Australians were still outnumbered on the Kokoda track by 5 to 1 and were forced to carry out bloody fighting withdrawal in which both sides suffered very heavy casualties. You need to know all this to know what's going on. Even though I still don't know what's going on. I must relay the story. So... <laughs> The Japanese advanced ground to a halt on a ridge where they could actually see the lights of Port Moresby. The Japanese supply lines were in chaos and the surviving Japanese troops were starving and exhausted. Unable to proceed and denied reinforcements because of the critical situation facing the Japanese on Guadalcanal, the Japanese were ordered to abandon the capture of Port Moresby and retreat to their beachheads on the northern coast. They were closely pursued by fresh reinforcements from Australia. Just stay with me, it's just a little bit longer till you get to the people eating. 
An especially abhorrent aspect of the heavy fighting of the Kokoda track during the Australian fighting withdrawal is the failure of any Australian taken prisoners by the Japanese to survive capture. An especially abhorrent aspect of the heavy fighting on the Kokoda track during the Australian fighting withdrawal is the failure of any Australian taken prisoner by the Japanese to survive capture. The Japanese are known to have frequently murdered prisoners of war singly and in batches on little if any provocation. Resistance appears to have been especially effective in provoking murderous instincts in the Japanese military. The Japanese were infuriated by the strong resistance to their advance put up by the Australians on the Kokoda track. They had suffered heavy losses and the Australian fighting withdrawal had seriously disrupted their timetable for crossing the mountains and had caused their own troops to run short on food. In those circumstances, the Japanese would not want to waste their own food on prisoners of war whom they had been taught to despise. The circumstances point to a strong probability that all captured Australians were immediately executed by the Japanese. Even more horrifying is the evidence that the Japanese killed and ate captured Australians when they had not exhausted their own food supplies. So as the Australians pursued the retreating Japanese, this is where I get into more understanding of what's going on because we're out of war talk. Well, kind of. No promises. So, as the Australians pursued the retreating Japanese along the Kokoda track, they came upon evidence that the Japanese had been eating captured Australian soldiers. After a fierce clash with the Japanese at Templeton's Crossing, an Australian patrol was forced to withdraw and leave behind six Australian dead and four wounded. Reinforcements arrived on the following day and the Australians were able to attack again and captured the Japanese position. The Australian troops were horrified to find that the Japanese had been eating both the wounded and dead Australians who had been left behind on the previous day. Corporal Bill Hedges described the following scene. Quote, the Japanese had cannibalized our wounded and dead soldiers. We found them with meat stripped off their legs and half-cooked meat in the Japanese pots. One of Corporal Hedge's closest comrades was among the butchered bodies. He said, I was heartily disgusted and disappointed to see my good friend lying there with the flesh stripped off his arms and legs, his uniform torn off him. Shortly afterwards, the Australian Corporal was appalled to discover that the Japanese had not resorted to cannibalism because of starvation. He said, We found dumps with rice and a lot of tin food, so they weren't starving and having to eat flesh because they were hungry. The quotations of Corporal Hedges came from The Horror in the East by Lawrence Reese, a BBC publication in 2001. This book is essential reading for anyone hoping to try to understand Japanese war atrocities. Understand it, you probably won't, but learn about them, you will. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard mindset to get into. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, it goes, it goes on. It's mind-blowing. According to the testimony of a surviving Pakistani corporal who was captured in Singapore and housed as a prisoner of war in Papua New Guinea, Japanese soldiers on the island killed and ate about one prisoner per day over the course of 100 days. Officers ordered troops to eat human flesh to give them a feeling of victory. And one Indian prisoner of war said the Japanese started selecting prisoners and every day one prisoner was taken out and killed and eaten by the soldiers. I personally saw this happen and about 100 prisoners were eaten at this place by the Japanese. And that's just one POW <laughs> camp. Yeah, yeah. 
he goes on, the remainder of us were taken to another spot 50 miles away where 10 prisoners died of sickness. At this place, the Japanese again starting selecting prisoners to eat. Those selected were taken to a hut where their flesh was cut from their bodies while they were alive and they were thrown into a ditch where they later died. So I know what you're thinking, what the fuck, Japan? To that, I respond to you. Let's read about the captured American pilots. The Knights of Bushido. That's the one I just had for the last one. So the same book by Lord Russell, of Liverpool, of course, (laughs) relates the story of a young American pilot who is captured, murdered, and eaten by Japanese officers on the island of New Britain. The story is told by Havildar Tandgi Ram, who had been shipped to New Britain with other Indian army prisoners of war and forced to work as a slave laborer for the Imperial Japanese Army. Quote, November 12th, 1944, I was digging a trench for the Japanese in the Totabil area of New Britain. About 1600 hours, a single-engined United States fighter plane made a forced landing about 100 years away when I was working. The Japanese from Gobutai Penadebo camp rushed to the spot and seized the pilot, who could not have been more than 20 years old, and had managed to scramble out of the plane before the Japs could reach him. About half an hour from the time of the forest landing, the Kempeitai, which is the Japanese military secret police, beheaded the pilot. I saw this from behind a tree and watched some of the Japanese cut flesh from his arms, legs, hips, and buttocks and carry it off to their quarters. I was so shocked at the scene and followed the Japanese just to find out what they would do with the flesh. They cut it into small pieces and fried it. Later that evening, a senior Japanese officer of the rank of Major General addressed a large number of officers. At the conclusion of his speech, a piece of fried flesh was given to all present who ate it on the spot. Lord Russell also provides extracts from the testimony of Major Matoba before a military tribunal on Guam after the Japanese surrender. Major Matoba described a number of occasions on which the flesh of murdered prisoners of war was consumed in Japanese officers' mess. This disgusting behavior took on the character of a festive occasion, with the flesh being washed down with sake. Very senior army and navy officers attended the officers' mess when human flesh was consumed and Major Matoba claims they had encouraged this behavior. So there's that. I also read that there is a story of George H.W. Bush. I think the older one. Yeah, that's the dad. Yeah, that was, I didn't put it in here, but that he was a part of pilots who were captured, but he actually evaded capture from cannibalism from Japan and then became president. Oh yeah, he, George H.W. Bush was a pilot who served in the Pacific Theater. He flew a torpedo bomber capable of taking off from aircraft carriers. Yeah, see, I was right. I just didn't put it in here. I had too many examples of Japanese cannibalism to put into here. Well, this just reminds me, have you ever heard of the Japanese guy who killed somebody, ate them, and is walking free on the streets in Japan, like, today? Which one? <laughs> well, his name is um, Issei I'm pretty Zagawa. sure I know He's who you He's known as the Kobe about. cannibal. And yeah, he was studying in Paris, and he yes. killed and ate his roommate. Yeah. And then I believe they said that he was mentally unfit in Japan to stand trial or not stand trial, but he went to a mental health facility and he got to leave because he's from a rich family, basically. What was his uh, name? Issei Sagawa. I-S-S-E-I-S-A-G-A-W-A. And this just seems to line up with what happened in that time. Japan just would have been like, 
good on you. Good on you. And, was and it almost, it, it gives a cultural reference to why he would be driven to cannibalism like that. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. And the thing about cannibalism is when you hear about cannibalism, at least what's acceptable cannibalism is that it's for survival. There's literally nothing else that you can do to survive except eat another human being, right? Pretty much, but, yeah. Unless you're talking serial killers, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. In which case, it's the same thing. Uh, and we refer back to Japanese war crimes. But with Japan, it's more of like a status and power thing. Well, and especially it was humans that were beneath you, at least at this time, is what they're really trying to convey. Like, they're, they're yeah. not even, like, worth being humans. They're just animals to be consumed. Yeah. No, it's pretty messed up. And so I do have one last cannibal story to haunt your dreams about Japan. And this is just a setup for some other Japanese not being that great episodes that we will probably have. Well, we will because we just talked about it before this podcast. There will be other ones. And I'm doing one next. So. Exactly. <laughs> That's foreshadowing for the next episode. We're so good at it. I'm so good at foreshadowing. So World War II and the Suzuki unit. And I'm sure, because I wrote these notes, that this is not David Suzuki. This is a totally different Suzuki No, unit. David Suzuki is in fact in a, <laughs> not a concentration camp, an internment camp in Canada at this time. So that's kind of his, one of the big things he talks about a lot is that Canada interned all the Japanese, which included him. Oh, um, okay. Let's talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> Deployed to the humid mountain jungles of the Ukidnon region in 1945, the Suzuki unit was tasked with combating native and American resistance to the Japanese occupation of the area. At the beginning, they had some food rations, and when they ran low, they managed to forage for food and also steal some from local villages. However, many of the soldiers got sick and died, sometimes due to diseases like malaria and other times from violent bouts of diarrhea. And that was back in a time or region where diarrhea can kill. One big challenge from them was the humidity. They were simply sweating too much. Every exertion they made, foraging, marching, building shelter, was costing them calories, water, and protein. The only way to save his men, Enoda argued in his defense, was to feed them some kind of meat. Underlining some kind. I just did that. What do you call it? I just stressed. Foreshadow? Some kind for you. Yeah, I just foreshadowed the shit out of that again. <laughs> Whenever possible, we avoided killing by eating the bodies of people who died from illness or were killed in action or were executed for crimes. Can you imagine? Enoda said, however, officials were suspicious about the true motive behind this cannibalism. Their suspicions were all but confirmed by the testimony of Rikimi Yamamoto another soldier who joined the Suzuki unit. Rikimi says, We frequently ate human meat as our dinner, he testified, boiled it up with vegetables and ate it. The meat was brought into camp by patrols who had cut it up and dressed it. Sometimes the meat was dried and sun-cured. Since no other meat was available, we had to eat human flesh. For this reason, Filipinos were captured and butchered. I was so hungry I ate it, although I would have preferred pork. Good insight from Rikimi. Although... Noda yeah, was so, at, <laughs> yes. no continue continue <laughs> although Enoda was adamant that he had no other choice the graphic testimony from his prosecutors read like something from a horror movie 
Quote, when Lieutenant Alejandro Sale captured the Suzuki unit, he found human bones and human flesh in the process of cooking. Human skulls and fragments of the human body around the premises of the camp of the Suzuki unit, in and around the houses occupied by the members of the unit, and it can therefore be concluded that the killing of Filipinos and the eating of their flesh were of common knowledge to all the members of the unit who were encamped together in one place. Dear God. Uh, can you imagine seeing something like that? Like that's and and your answer is we needed to eat meat. Have the Japanese never heard of a vegetarian diet? Yeah, some kind of meat. No, they obviously have not. No word for it in Japanese. Even with plenty of rations of food left, they they go right for the humans. Ultimately, Noda and nine of his men were sentenced to death for their horrific crimes. I wonder by who. It was probably not Japan, because Japan thinks it's fine. That will come up in my episode. Okay, good. I'm so glad I put that in for foreshadowing. <laughs> There's no question that this description of World War II cannibalism is horrifying. But perhaps even more disturbing is the fact that some historians believe hunger was just an excuse for this behavior, as we've said way more than multiple times throughout what I've been talking about. As Tanaka told one interviewer in 1992, the real motive in most cases may have been to consolidate the group feeling of the troops. Yeah. So, these are just a very few of the war crimes committed by Japan. One being comfort woman and one being cannibalism. Those were just two that I was like, these need to be talked about. There will probably be more of these in our future, but I just wanted to touch quickly on something. I know, we mentioned this at the top, I know for one was a little bit shocked to learn that Japan was so unsavory. <laughs> it, you hear about the atrocities of the Western Front so much that you kind of like, and especially Japan becomes a quick ally, like right after World War II. So you can't really yeah. think that they did things that were that heinous. Yeah. And or else why would really, we become allies with them? We don't really learn about this side of it when you learn about the war and stuff. Like you learn about the kamikaze pilots and stuff like that. I don't remember ever learning about Japan being so horrible. And then you were learn about Japan's culture because it's so... Like I remember learning about Japan. But nothing about how horrible Japan has been in the past. It's just like, no, you learn and especially like as a child that grew up in the 90s, I was obsessed with ninjas. So you learn about yeah. like feudal Japan, uh, the, oh, Edo, yeah. the Edo era with the samurais and the ninja. But yeah, you skip that middle part where it goes fascist, where they yeah. go really fascist. And then we come back in like the 50s yeah. and when Godzilla shows up. Yeah. <laughs> and Mothra. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this is an important part it's not our history but it's part of the world history and the thing about the world history is if you pretend like it didn't happen it happens again so i think all parts of history are important to know about whether you like it or not japan yeah I'm looking yeah at you. and just a little quick aside here i i do think that we need to say that just talking about this we're not saying that what happened on the western fronts particularly to people in concentration camps no. is not absolutely atrocious these are just That's separate things they're both very yeah. important to know about exactly and that goes with saying that part is also equally as important as learning about and not forgetting about it because it's horrible 
people don't like it's horrible who wants to talk about it but if you forget about what happened in her past you're bound to repeat it again but that's something that's more commonly known with what happened on the western front but with japan it's just kind of glossed over like oh japan's not so bad they have no crime in japan except those funny yakuza people yeah and they like i even said in my episode and taylor mentioned as well they straight up deny that a lot of this happened because they don't like the connotations for what it actually means to japan so things like that are really important to us even in this podcast to talk about is things that are uncomfortable but are an important part to be talked about and yeah so japan loves to do evil things and pretend like it doesn't do evil things i was also going to cover in this episode japanese textbook censorship in regards to all of this stuff but let's be honest once i started looking into it there is a ton of fucked up japanese war crimes i could have included and didn't have enough time for so that will probably make it into a future episode as well because that's something they did as well and with that brief mention of what i could have covered but didn't stay tuned for a future japanese is not what you think and is actually horrible yeah. in the past, but maybe now because now they have serial killers in Paris eating people as well. Well, that was 40 years ago. <laughs> because it's it was like Indian right now. in the middle timeline between when the first cannibalism <laughs> happened and today. And with that, I think I hope I hope you all learned the important lesson not to eat while you're listening to Journey to the Fringe. <laughs> I do apologize if that happened to you just now. We will not be compensating you for it. (laughs) Just don't do it again. (laughs) Yeah. I have been Taylor here with Chelsea. We have been Journey to the Fringe on this sad episode. I don't know how else to put it. And that's a very awkward laugh. I apologize. Thank you all for listening. And we will see you next week when we talk about this even further. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh